name is not Dr. Google. I'm Dr. V. I want you to be healthy and happy, so we're going to talk about all the things I can't fit into a 15-minute appointment. Let's get started. Step into my office. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Office Visits with Dr. V. Thank you, thank you, thank you for finding us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thank you for listening. I hope you stay tuned for the whole entire episode because this is a good one. And I've got a very, very special guest, very special guest guest with us today. And again, we're trying to educate. And so this is one I think you guys, you females do not want to miss. So today I have the pleasure of introducing you all to Dr. Melissa Davies. Dr. Melissa Davies is an OBGYN. And not only is she an OBGYN, but she has joined my practice, Eagle OBGYN. And we are so happy to have her. But more importantly, you all know that I'm phasing out. She's phasing in and she's going to be assuming the care of all of my sweet, special patients. So, I know a lot of my patients are listening, and as I have said my goodbyes with you all, you've all been gracious and said, hey, we'll give her a try. If you trust her, we trust her. And so what is she like? So I brought her on, not only for us to kind of get to know her and introduce her, you know, to the world, but for her to share some of her expertise, because one thing, and I'm just going to tell you all this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. And so in the spirit, when I met her, I knew that we were very similar as far as how we take care of our patients. And not, not to toot my own horn, but there are not a lot of people left that take care of patients, will listen and, you know, make sure that all their questions are answered. And so I knew that, that she would be really good. And as we were preparing for this episode, oh my gosh, she loves to educate as well. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Dr. Melissa Davies. Hello, Dr. Davies. Hello, Dr. B. <laughs> hey, everyone. <laughs> so do you have a nickname? Do people call you Dr. something, MD? No, you know, it's funny. I, I never actually, my name is just not one that gets a good nickname. My first name nor my last name, so I've never really mm -hmm. had one. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's see, Dr. D. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that one. <laughs> like Dr. Deb? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to let Dr. Davies introduce herself. I, I don't read a bio because I don't think y'all listen. I know sometimes I don't on a podcast. But Dr. Melissa Davies, to my patients who are saying, who is Dr. Davies? What is she going to be like? You would say? Yeah. So just for a little bit of my background, I am a native of Fayetteville, North Carolina, whoop, whoop, whoop. Vietnam, as some of you may know it. And I actually went to Campbell University for my undergraduate degree, spent three years out of medical school working in a medical office there Wow! before going back to medical school at Campbell again. And then I did my residency training, just finished up this year at ECU Vidant. And so I jokingly call myself um, a pirate riding a double humped camel. Because Campbell's mascot is the camel. Uh, the camel. So, yeah. Hey, yeah so I've, been, okay. I've been through there twice. And then outside of that, 
I'm a mom of two kids. I've been married for 13 years. We just celebrated a 13th wow. anniversary. My oldest son. Yes, thank you. Finger snap. <laughs> my oldest um, is eight. His name is Jonathan. And my youngest, she's four and a half. Her name is Hannah Grace. And so I pride myself on being a mom. I've always wanted to be. Awesome. And then in terms of my OBGYN journey, I have, I always tell people I'm very boring. I've always wanted to do this. I saw my first live birth in Tanzania, East Africa. Wow. And that solidified all of my hopes and aspirations. And then when I rotated through medical school, I really did not like anything else. Oh, wow. <laughs> Nothing else? Not really. No, I just, just didn't suit me at all. And I just really couldn't see myself doing anything else. So. I like to empower women, as mm-hmm. Dr. V already mm-hmm. mentioned, to educate because I think it's important that we take care of our health and know about our bodies. Awesome. Awesome. So quick question. So I am an MD medical doctor and you are a DO. So for our listeners who've never been to a DO, can you explain what that means? That's a good question. So DO is a doctor of osteopathic medicine, and it's actually becoming more and more common. But to keep it super simplified, and if you have questions in person, you can ask me. We receive the same medical training and medical background. We just receive additional training. I want to say it's like 200 to 300 additional hours in learning osteopathic manipulative medicine. And although I don't like to compare ourselves apple to apple to chiropractors, But some of the manipulations may be viewed as very similar. Mm -hmm. So learning how to do, you know, adjustments on different parts of the body, on bones. But we also focus on muscle and tissue. I have seen it used in OBGYN. I actually, one of my attending physicians back in ECU is very passionate about that, especially in pregnant women. Some women do it a little more than others. So it just depends on, you know, comfort level. And then it depends on the specialty too. I feel like primary care is a really key spot where it can be used to help patients. Do you feel like you'll use that in your practice? I think I can do some. There are some bone things that I'm not as, I'm not as good as I used to be in that. Mm -hmm. So I, Mm -hmm. I won't, I won't try that, but some simple, more simple adjustments. I feel a little comfortable. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll get you back to talk about OB stuff because I know that's another one of your interests, high risk pregnancies and prenatal counts. But Women with aches and pains, it's probably no more pronounced than when you are pregnant, yes. maybe two months from the, the due date, and your pelvis is relaxed and your bones are shifting and it hurts. And sometimes I feel as an OBGYN, there's like not much I can do. It's right. like, let's just ride it out. So that's awesome that, you know, that we have a part of our specialty that can address that. Right. So you said that you were in Tanzania. Tell me why you were in Tanzania. So we actually did a, this was right a few days probably after my undergrad graduation. It was part of a um, undergraduate trip, but it was a medical mission trip. And Mm -hmm. so we did a lot of different things. We went to one orphanage in particular and we started medical charts for them. So we kept track of their weight and, you know, looked at their oral health. We taught about proper hand washing and teeth brushing and also went out into some of the public schools in the area to talk about misconceptions on HIV and AIDS, because there are still some perceptions there that you can get HIV or AIDS if you eat next to a person or, you know, if a person 
saliva just touches your skin, right, what have right. you. So we kind of talked about that. And then we also went out into some of the public schools and did help distribute medication for, I'm going to see if I say this properly now, but schistomiasis is one of the, yeah. one of the worms. It's a parasite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but thank you. Parasite worms at, in near, you know, in the lakes in that region. And then we also, just for learning, went through some of the hospitals in the area. And then we rotated with Dr. Kawira, who is an American physician who owned her own clinic. She actually spoke Swahili as well as one of the tribal languages. Oh, wow. And that's where I saw my first live birth. Someone off the street was ready to have a baby and within two hours gave birth right there in the clinic. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we do this for a living. We deliver babies. We do surgery for a living. The birth of a child is never lost on me. Never lost on me. But tell me about your first time. Like when you were in that moment in Tanzania, what was it like? when you saw for the first time someone giving birth. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it's very different there because culturally things were different. It's actually a little bit comical because the lady was screaming and the nurses there are no joke. <laughs> like they were slapping her arm oh, no. and telling her no. So they, they meant business. They were like, girl, stop on the Let's get this baby out. Exactly. So that was kind of funny for me because again, I had never seen a live birth anywhere. Yeah. So I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But it's pretty amazing. And I think that, you know, being able to help facilitate bringing life into the world is yeah. just so cool. But I, I loved every bit of it. I was that 12-year-old kid. I used to watch, there was a show on TLC called A Baby Story. <laughs> and so I was good on the couch and eat mac yeah, yeah. and watch a baby story. Yeah. And I, I loved it. I loved it so much. Yeah, a baby story that was a 30-minute show. And labor, y'all, could be like 24 hours, but they would cut it up. And so I was getting patients, and they're like, but it's not like a baby store. I'm like, no, I'm not sitting outside your door, like on the show. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. So I know some of your interests in medicine, and I think that'll kind of segue into the patient education that we want to share. But what is it that you love about obstetrics and gynecology? Yes. So I love being in the position to help, like you said, educate women. I think one of the main things is, you know, educating women about our bodies. I feel like, I don't know, I vaguely remember being 10 and having some sort of sex education course. Right. That was pretty much it. Right. I mean, maybe when I was 14, the talk was just mostly about making sure you use condoms. But you really don't get education about your anatomy, your own body, where and what things are and proper terminology. Right. And so being able to help women understand their bodies and where and what things are is is something that I find enjoyable because to see light bulbs go off. Oh, I never knew that or didn't understand that. I didn't understand. Right. Right. And, you know, the media, too, often gives women perceptions on how our bodies are supposed to be and what they're supposed mm -hmm. to look like and mm -hmm. how they're supposed to smell and all this stuff. So, right. Anyway, being in that position to kind of talk about that. And that's that's more personal stuff that women are not comfortable talking about out in the open or even sometimes with their own family members. So being in that position to, mm -hmm. to talk about those mm -hmm. more sensitive topics, mm -hmm. you know, I feel pretty comfortable talking about those things. Right. And when you're comfortable, your patients will be comfortable. And, you know, making women feel comfortable enough that they can share and ask a question that they may deem as stupid. Like, right. 
I don't know where my clitoris is, or right? I don't know where my vagina is. Well, actually, I don't think anybody has ever asked me where the clitoris is, but I've asked them, and they didn't know, right. you know? And so one thing I think we connected on was, you know, women don't know their anatomy. Right. And so, you know, we were thinking about what topics to talk about, and that was one thing that we were like, yes, I hate that. Yeah. So, so, you know, I have a big pet peeve when we call our vagina, our whole female anatomy. Exactly. Like the vagina is one portion of it. Right. It is a muscular tube that leads from the outside to the inside. Right. And so the whole thing is not the vagina. Right. So the outside is the vulva. And what a lot of people call the lips are the labia. And, you know, you have the bigger lips, which are the labia majora. You have the smaller lips, which are the labia minora. Um, I don't consider this actually, I, I'm catching myself. This is not, I don't think, pornography or anything that anybody should not let their child hear. But if that, if you feel this sensitive, we're going to be talking about a body part. So, so they'll have the bigger lips, the labia majora, then the smaller lips, the labia minora, and then we have the vagina. So I'm going to let you take from the cervix on up, Dr. Davies, because you are also a surgeon. And and I'm a surgeon, too. Let me not. We're both surgeons, but she also has been trained in a specialty called robotic surgery. So if you'll just tell us the remainder of the anatomy, I mean, we'll just do the basic stuff. Not, yeah. You don't have to tell them ligaments and stuff. Yeah. And blood supply. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So as Dr. V already mentioned, the vagina is just that one tube that leads up to the cervix, which is most people think of it is the part of your uterus, the bottom part of your uterus that opens and dilates during labor that accommodates a child to come out of the birth canal. So the cervix is almost like it's actually funny when I learned the translation, um, the Spanish word for it. It's literally like neck of the uterus or something. Uh-huh. So I was like, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And then the cervix leads up into the body of the uterus, which is almost like a little pear shaped organ and that's what most people know as the womb so that's what the baby is contained in as well as the placenta and then at the very tops of the uterus you have the fallopian tubes which are the little tubes that are adjacent to the ovaries which are kind of on the side walls of the pelvis and the fallopian tubes they don't really have their own hormonal function but they do pick up the egg Mm. that allows Mm. it to travel Mm. inside so that the sperm can meet it. Yeah. um, So they are important for becoming pregnant. And so that's probably the the basics for women's anatomy. So I'm just going to geek out. And I told her to keep it simple. But what I'm just so fascinated by what our bodies can do. The fallopian tubes have fingers. We call them fimbriae. And y'all can't see me, but they just sweep the over the egg into the tube. Like it's their job to make sure that when you release an egg from the ovary, that it comes into the fallopian tube. Like, I mean, it's it's just so amazing. God thought it is saying it is just amazing. So, and all of this happens without any input from us. You know, just like you know, you don't have to tell your brain to make you breathe or your heart to beat. You know, this just happens. And for most of us. It happens without a problem, and it doesn't require any input or medications or or supplements to do this. It just does it. It was designed to do it. So 
We were interested also in talking with you guys about surgery so and procedures, surgery on these parts that we just told you about. So first of all, Dr. Davies, I, I, I know a lot of patients are getting more savvy, but you are a robotic surgeon. And robotic surgery is not specific to our specialty, not specific to OBGYN. But tell me, you know, just a little bit about robotic surgery for our listeners. Yeah. So robotic surgery is actually really interesting and fun for the surgeon. But essentially, it's more of a specialized form of what a lot of people know as laparoscopic surgery. Well, all laparoscopic surgery is is when you make small incisions in the abdomen and you use a camera to help you see inside the body. And that in and of itself is actually pretty cool. Robotic surgery is essentially the same thing. So the, or the same concept where you, you know, put small incisions that um, allow you to see into the abdomen with a camera, but it's connected to another device that have projections that almost look like octopus arms or <laughs> it doesn't sound as wild as what I'm probably making it sound, but it's attached to arms. And um, there's a, an area called a console where you, you know, the surgeon puts their face into the camera or into the lenses and they can see what the camera is seeing. And there are instruments that the surgeon can use and operate from afar. And again, I would encourage you to watch a video of one because it sounds really outlandish, but it's actually not. All of these these are connected. And so the instruments can articulate a little bit better or really a lot better than the instruments used in laparoscopic surgery. And oftentimes laparoscopic surgery is called straight stick. Mm-hmm. So the functionality is a little bit easier. The visualization is easier. And a lot of the procedures that can be done robotically usually can be done pretty quickly with minimal blood loss and pretty quick recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when she says articulation, the the hands of the instrument, I'm saying hands, but they move like our hands. Actually, they move better than our hands because they can rotate. Is it 360 degrees? Can they rotate the whole? So they can can get in little corners and crevices that we can't get into. So for women who potentially have, you know, pretty hard surgery or fibroids that are not in the right place or scar tissue, it really, really helps. And and the other thing is she said you're putting she's putting her face in a console. So this is like magnified and it looks Mm -hmm. amazing. So it's almost like she is peeking into your body mm-hmm. to do this surgery with the robot who's at the bedside. Now, there is someone. So I've been a robotic assistant and I was going to train on it. Now, Dr. Davies, let me say this real quick. She I went to East Carolina Medical School and she did her residency at East Carolina Medical School. So I know she got a great education, a good training. And as a part of her residency program, they taught her this because it's something that is, you know, up and coming and it's it's here. When I trained, we were just getting started on robotic surgery. So I came out in 2006. And so it was kind of like and I had been through Hurricane Katrina and we were all over the place and I didn't get the training and I was going to go back, but it's a long time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of hours. So kudos to you um, for continuing that skill. So who are the women that would benefit? Well, let's back up. Let's talk about some of the common surgeries that 
OBGYNs do? Yeah. What's, what's one of your favorites? Oh, my gosh. So I have two top favorites. Okay. One is actually the C-section. Oh. Which I know, I know now we're trying to decrease the amount of C-section. Yeah, I don't mean it that way. But yeah. when one arises, I think because it's the best of both worlds, you're mm-hmm. delivering a baby, but you get to do surgery. Right. And for those of you who are listening and think that might be kind of strange, like why does, you know, why do they like to do surgery? As Dr. B already said, we are surgeons and we trained in surgery. We like operating. It, there's something about it that's fun. But so I do love a bread and butter C-section. But in terms of other types of GYN procedures, I would probably say I really do love robotic hysterectomies, but I also love vaginal hysterectomy, which is the best way to do a hysterectomy if you have to do one and a, a patient is a good candidate for But you leave with no incisions on the abdomen. And I just think that is my yeah. cool. Yeah, that you is know? cool. That is cool. So my favorite, it's just fun to do. It's not minimally invasive, though. It's a myomectomy. It's called an abdominal myomectomy. So you make a C-section incision. So you have the bikini cut, but then you actually have the uterus in your hand and you open the uterus and take out all of the individual fibroids. Love it, love it, love it. One reason I like it is because, you know, a uterus that's up to the belly button and then when you're done, it's like the size of the patient's fist, like it should be. And so I feel like you can make a huge impact on their life, but it's almost like popping a zit. I just love it. <laughs> I yeah. love it. So why would someone need some of the GYN surgeries like hysterectomy, robotic hysterectomy, vaginal hysterectomy? Let's let's just stick with hysterectomy for a while. Yeah. Why does somebody need a hysterectomy? I feel like probably the more common ones we probably all see as OBGYN is abnormal uterine bleeding for whatever reason, often secondary to fibroids. I would probably say it's pretty common, Mm -hmm. whether they're big or small or, you know, bleeding for whatever reason where a woman can have an excessive amount of bleeding each month and it impacts their daily life and they can't really function or it causes them to become so anemic that they can't, you know, it can be life-threatening for them eventually. And the other reasons would be, you know, severe pelvic pain. And of course, all of these women undergo, you know, an extensive workup to look for any specific cause. But I would probably probably say that's those are the main reasons a woman would have a hysterectomy. Now, are there alternatives to it? Now, I'm asking her the questions, y'all. You know, I know the answers, but I want Dr. Davies to shine. So what are the alternatives to a hysterectomy? Yes, there are many alternatives, birth control in general or contraceptives as a whole often can help with issues with bleeding or other hormonal issues. And that includes birth control pills, the IUD, which is the little T-shaped device that can go inside the uterus, Nexplanon, which is the little small rod that goes um, underneath the arm superficially, as well as patches, vaginal rings. Those are some of those options. Um, And Depo, which is the injection that you get every 12 weeks. There's more heavy-duty medications such as Depo-Lupron, so it's a different form for women who have really large fibroids and their goal is to shrink them. But that medication is not really a long-term medication beyond that one forever. And so only really good candidates or specific patients are good for that particular medication. 
So that is that is often a first step prior to even thinking about surgery for patients to try to treat their bleeding and or fibroid. Okay. And what are some of the risks of a hysterectomy? Ooh. So we have to, you know, as physicians, we are obligated for mm. every patient. Come on now. Obligated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to obligated. discuss. Yes. To discuss the risks of any procedure that we do on or for a patient. So general surgical risks, and we, we talk about this, to, so to be more basic, would be risk of infection. Anytime you're making an incision or entering the uterus through the vagina, that can put someone at risk for infection. Blood loss. Interestingly, even if you have a very simple procedure that you intend to be done pretty quick, there can be some sort of blood loss. And one of the others is pain, long-term pain after the surgery. And then, you know, worst case scenario, again, we do talk about this and it doesn't happen that often, but death can be a complication as a result of any surgery. And I tell patients all the time, you can go get a surgery on your thumb and you get some sort of infection that could lead to sepsis and lead to death. You know, it doesn't happen every day and it doesn't happen that often. But, you know, Mm -hmm. understanding that that is a very real risk of surgery. Right, right. The other one that's huge is is bladder injuries, specific to maybe hysterectomies. Like she said, that can happen with anything because you could have scar tissue, but injuries to the bladder, injury to the colon. And so getting a surgery where somebody's going inside your belly is not like getting your hair cut. Right. Like, You have to know when you're getting surgery that you really need this surgery and you really want this surgery and you're willing to accept the risk. We have kind of briefly gone through what we call informed consent. And as Dr. Davey said, we are informed, we are obligated to inform you. So if you have a surgeon who says, we're going to do this surgery, they don't want to answer any of your questions. They don't want to tell you anything about the procedure. Then I, I think that's a huge red flag that you probably don't need to have the surgery done by that surgeon. And I'm sorry, y'all, if I'm stepping on somebody's toes, <laughs> but it's the truth. So they are obligated, A, to tell you, you know, what the procedure is, why you need the procedure, the risk of the surgery, the benefits of the surgery, and the alternatives. Now, I didn't ask you a lot of questions, but I mean, you were talking for a few minutes. And so it is so important that you understand what you're getting yourself into. I think alternatives are huge because if you wake up and you've got a, you know, injury to your bladder and you've got to wear a catheter for two weeks. If you were like, all I had to do was get an IUD and exactly. I didn't have to do all of this, that might kind of, you know, rub you the wrong way. And I've had patients who've had abnormal bleeding and I'm like, okay, so there's a Mirena, you know, it's free. Right. It'll do the same thing. Right. You know, it is hormonal, though. It's not definitive. I can't guarantee you'll never have another period again, but it's an alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you like to say about, you know, when women are trying to make these decisions, what do they need to consider? Yeah, so definitely, I agree 100%. You know, if someone is not talking to you about alternatives. Now, sometimes I talk to patients about alternatives 
But I also explain why maybe those alternatives would not be the best option. The best, right. But they are at least presented because, mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. you know, it's important to have a healthy doctor-physician relationship and use, you know, now what we call shared decision-making. I feel like, uh, you know, years and years ago, I mean, and some of, some of these physicians still exist today, Medicine is very paternalistic, right? You need to do this. You need to do this. If you don't, you know, there's no other option. right? And so using shared decision-making, what's going to work best for your lifestyle? What's going to work best for you as the patient? And also understanding that sometimes before considering surgery, you know, if your surgeon is not investigating you know, any of your other medical problems and optimizing those before mm-hmm. surgery, that could be problematic mm-hmm. too. You right. may very well need the procedure, but you, you know, maybe need to work on weight loss or getting your diabetes under control or, you know, stop smoking before the procedure because all of those things can impact wound healing, your functionality after the surgery. And right. so th- all of those things need to be considered before going back to the OR. I think that's awesome. Um, And again, we're all trying to do this, but sometimes, you know, when, and, and I'm guilty of it. If we get busy, sometimes, you know, we don't go through every little detail, but again, I want to empower you as a patient because it's not a bother to me to say, okay, well, wait, wait, where can I have sex again? Or where can I pick up my child again? Like I didn't, answer that. So it's, it's your right. It is your right to ask those questions. Anything that you are unsure about that your surgeon can assist you with. So you, you talked about optimizing other medical conditions. So there are, we call them a good surgical candidate, meaning somebody who you think, A, will survive the surgery and will come out better than worse. And so talk about, you know, what makes someone a good surgical candidate? Yeah. So really, I mean, the optimal surgical candidate for any surgeon would be really a person, you know, no medical problems such as hypertension, diabetes, asthma, or sleep apnea, generally within a normal weight range. That's the best of all worlds. But we live in America and a lot of us have, you know, some sort of what we call comorbidity or some medical problem that does impact our lot. But you can still have those medical conditions and still be a relatively good surgical candidate as long as those medical conditions are under control. Like you can be a chronic hypertensive, but you're on medication and it's well controlled. Right. Or, you know, you can have diabetes and you've had it for a long time, but you have it under control with the proper medications or diet or what have you. So those are some of the things that make a good surgical candidate. And again, to emphasize, you know, a person who is able to function, you know, because someone who doesn't have a good functional life without having had surgery, you know, they have difficulty walking up and down stairs or cooking a meal, then obviously if you throw or add on surgery to that person's Mm -hmm. life, that could severely debilitate them and make their quality of life worse than better. So considering all of those things as well. Now, what I will add is that, you know, you mentioned earlier that your surgeon should optimize those conditions. So before we say we're taking you to the operating room, I should know how well controlled your diabetes is. Specifically, we'll use that one specifically because that directly affects wound healing. 
And if your sugar's un- under, not under control, then everything I've done, my incision may just open up or you're more likely to get an infection. So, you know, we do have to do our due diligence. We usually have something called surgical clearance. So, you know, I'm not a primary care doctor, but you should have a primary care doctor when you have these conditions that knows you and can say, all right, yeah, she's okay to undergo surgery. Her diabetes is under control, except. And so we will often request information from your primary care doctor who's managing these problems. Now, I have had patients who like get upset because the primary care doctor wants them to come in to get an EKG. Okay, you've had high blood pressure and maybe you haven't had one in a while. So sometimes, ladies, before you actually have a major or minor surgery, especially going under general anesthesia, they're going to ask you to come back and make sure that they can assure us as your surgeon that that you're going to be fine. The other thing I wanted to mention is that the anesthesiologist is at the hospital. They're the ones that's going they're going to be responsible for putting you to sleep, keeping you asleep and waking you up and making sure that you get through the procedure well. Now, if you come in with a blood pressure 220 over 110, they're going to be like not today. I'm sorry, you got to come back because, you know, you're in stroke range and they can't safely put you to sleep or they check your blood sugar and it's 350, 400. Not today, boo. You got to get that under control. So I just wanted to bring that up that there is a safety net around your surgeon. There are multiple people that are involved in making sure that when you are ready to have surgery, that, you know, we've checked all the boxes and make sure that you can come out the healthiest possible. For women who are, you know, trying to think about surgery, and and we haven't talked about some of the minor surgeries like hysteroscopies, ablations, and hysteroscopic myomectomies. These are all procedures that we do through the the cervix and uh, uterus. And so there's no incision on the belly. Endometrial ablations, which also stop the heavy bleeding. These are all in episode, I think, number one, two, number three. I talked about all these procedures about heavy bleeding. But for women who are really trying to find good information on what surgeries to consider, where do you recommend that they go to get reliable information? And I'm just going to say it's definitely not in a Facebook chat group, but go ahead. Yes. Oh, my goodness. This is something I feel like we talk about all the time, every day. But I would say first and foremost, one, the office is always a good place because generally we have pamphlets from trusted sources, you know, that are put together. And I actually love handing out pamphlets. Mm -hmm. They often come with pictures and definitions. So it is awesome. Um, Yes. Excuse me. (laughs) Go ahead. And then... I also, and a lot of our pamphlets are written by ACOG. So as OBGYNs, our like governing body, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, that's kind of where what stamps us in as OBGYN. And they look at all the evidence and all the data to really everything, how we manage patients. They have a website with information specifically designed for patients. That's not difficult to read. It's a super, super good resource. So that would be where I would start. So ACOG, Mm -hmm. AC, and then often too, just for other general health-related things, the CDC is always good and 
feel like that can be controversial <laughs> a little bit, especially when it comes to the mask and stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure it was controversial before COVID. Like we, I, we, we, we trusted. Yeah. The, and I still trust the CDC, but yeah. It, it, never mind. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. That is a whole, that is a yeah. whole different thing. But I agree. I think COVID made it super controversial. And I think that's just the nature of, of COVID and mm-hmm. what we do and don't know and what we've learned. But that's a really good source, especially when it comes to different types of infections and how to go about treating. And that's actually what we use as well as a guide on, you know, how to treat certain infections and things. But, you know, just to reiterate again, you know, Facebook, we see all these crazy websites with fault, just truly false information that have no standing, no backing. If you are unable to go to a resource and it lists articles or lists textbooks where these information is coming from, you know, it, it's hard to consider that a reliable resource. And sometimes there are, you know, I feel like Mayo Clinic, you know, some university or educational websites are helpful too. you know, specific universities that you can check out. But yes, just be careful when you're looking for information. It's hard. It is hard. And I think what has replaced, I I don't know where we got lost. Like people don't trust their doctors anymore. And it's, it's almost like they're second guessing what we do that we haven't been trained properly. And I I know that, um, and I, I'm not saying that I, I want patients to feel empowered. Absolutely. Because you now have exposure to you know, the same information that we have. I just want to make sure that you interpret it correctly. That's all. That's all I'm saying is you don't, you don't come up here and, you know, someone who was in your Facebook group, they had an experience, but you don't know their medical history. Exactly. And they're not going to always share that with you because they may not think that having had three C-sections before they had a hysterectomy was important to tell you. But I, as your surgeon, know that that makes a huge difference as far as your risk and your outcomes. And so, you know, nothing wrong with being educated and nothing wrong with hearing someone else's story. Not a thing. But you can't always extrapolate that information onto you because you guys are two different people. And honestly, you know, one thing that excites me about surgery is that I don't know what I'm going to find when I get in there. You thought it was X and it might be Y. And that's, you know, part of our training to be prepared for, for, you know, one of my monkey wrenches. But you don't, you don't always have all of the information. And I never claim as, as a surgeon to know. I, I operate as God's assistant. He is using me. But just remember, just take everything with a grain of salt that everybody is not the same and their previous past medical history, family history, previous surgical history has so much to do with, you know, their outcomes on surgery. Even obese women, you know, even where the belly fat is can make a difference. You know, how the, your body fat is distributed over your abdomen can make a difference when we do surgery. So, you know, just just keep that in mind. You know, the podcast Office Business with Dr. V is just a tool to educate. And Dr. Davies mentioned ACOG. It's ACOG.org, I believe. 
But if you cannot remember that, if you will go to officevisitswithdrv.com, go to my resources page and I have it on my website and you can just click a link and it will take you straight there. So if you are considering any surgery, I definitely recommend that you stop there first. Is there anything else that you want to say about surgery? We didn't talk about procedures like leaps and colposcopies because those are done in the office. But anything else you want to share about surgery? I don't think so. I feel like we covered we covered all of it. And again, surgery, I just feel like is a very big decision on both ends on you as the patient, but also, on you know, this it's a huge responsibility for the surgeon. And so, um, looking at all of your resources, understanding what procedure you're having done and understanding, going back to tying into the anatomy portion, understanding what parts of you are being removed. I think we, we're trying to get away from the layman's term, partial and total hysterectomy. You can touch that. I yeah. know. Come on. Come yes. on. We got a few minutes. Understanding, you know, because I have patients all the time. Oh, well, I had everything removed. Well, what is everything? Is that the uterus, cervix? fallopian tubes and ovaries. Play the circle. Be- <laughs> yes, going back to yes. anatomy. Go ahead. Yes. And so understanding what is being removed and where, you know, because some people can't have super cervical hysterectomies mm-hmm. where the cervix is left for whatever reason. It's not as commonly done, but can still be done for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Sometimes it's just the safest thing to do yeah. to just stop the procedure where yeah. they are instead of continuing. And understanding that, you know, I have patients all the time just not really understanding what was taken. And and I don't mean that negatively, but it's it is hard. So I would go online, look at pictures, right. ask your physician to show you right. pictures. I love showing pictures in the office. It is it's fun. And, it you know, the light bulbs go off. Yeah. And so I yeah. think that's important. Yeah, you know. it is very important. If you have a hysterectomy and they leave your cervix, it makes a difference from, you know, a pap smear every three years to no pap smears ever again in life. That's why you need to know what they took out your body. If they only took out one ovary, you need to know what ovary you have left, or you need to know which one they took out. Because if they left your right and you start having pain on your right, then maybe there's something wrong with your right ovary. So that is so, so huge. Recapping, most women say partial hysterectomy to mean that they took out their uterus and left their ovaries. Now we are doing a procedure. We're adding to that where we're taking the fallopian tubes, which reduces the risk of ovarian cancer. And so we're taking the cervix, uterus, and and fallopian tubes and leaving the ovaries. That is optimally, you know, what we would do if you're having something like a hysterectomy. And that's what laymen say partial. If you take the ovaries in addition to all of that, then that is a full hysterectomy. And this is kind of unrelated, but some women will say after they've had a full hysterectomy, they never need to come back to see us again. And that's not true. It is not true. That is not true. <laughs> we want to see you. We want to see you. We know we took out all your stuff, but we still need to see you. Why do we, why do they, we're going to wrap it up here. Why do they still need to see us even after they've had a hysterectomy or some surgery or had an ovary removed? Yes. It's important because, again, going back to the anatomy to evaluate the vulva, the vagina, we often will do internal exams. And mm-hmm. if we feel something abnormal now in and of itself, it's, you know, not completely perfect, but it gives us an opportunity to 
talk about your sexual health. Mm -hmm. They do a breast exam in addition to the mammogram that you should be having every year. (laughs) And so it just gives us an opportunity to touch base because I feel like in the primary care setting, they don't have time to do those very two specific things. And I have patients all the time. My primary care didn't do a breast exam. Which is fine. I don't expect them to. That's what I'm here for. Absolutely. And so it's, it gives us time to address any of those concerns or, or issues. And sometimes there are cases where women, if they've had abnormal pap smears in the past, even though they've had a hysterectomy, still need some sort of surveillance. Right. So it gives up right. an opportunity to evaluate for that need as well. Right. Absolutely. And again, we're there to look at a place that most of y'all aren't looking at. And maybe your partner maybe might take a glance, side eye at it, but nobody's really like getting up and close and looking at all the nooks and crannies. And so, and we're also there to talk about things that you don't normally get to talk about. So I agree with everything you said. This was a good one. And like, like there's so many things that we are agreeing on and educating and showing pictures and answering questions. and. Dr. Davies is at Eagle OBGYN in Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, what I will say, as I am departing, I'm hearing from my patients, not only do they love me, but they love our staff. I know, y'all, this is a plug. They love our whole staff from the front to the back. I mean, they know our receptionist names by heart, like Miss Miss Kelly, like you will get the care that you need. And, and I am not leaving because of the practice. I'm not. I'm called to do something else. But I know that Dr. Davies will take very, very good care of my patients. And just on air to memorialize it, I say thank you. I say thank you because this was not an easy decision to to leave. But knowing that you were coming and we had so much in common made it easier for me to to step aside. And I love my partners, Dr. Cole and Dr. Ozan, and I think you're going to go great with them. So we're making this, what is this, August 12th, 2021. So, you know, she's just getting started. So she is, she's, she has all, she has a lot of spots. She's taking new patients. She's taking new patients. And again, she's going to do great. So again, again, guys, thank you all for listening. Please uh, leave a review for the podcast. You can also check out my website and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Office Visits with Dr. V. My prayer is that something said on this podcast will get you started on a path to your optimal health and wellness. The information, including opinions and recommendations discussed in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Such information is not intended to be a substitute for the advice of a qualified and licensed physician or other healthcare provider. Although I'm a doctor, this does not replace the advice of your licensed physician or healthcare provider. So please seek the advice of a qualified healthcare professional before making any changes to your healthcare regimen. And another thing, just by listening to this podcast doesn't make me your doctor. However, if you want to stay connected, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Office Visits with Dr. V. And go to my website at OfficeVisitsWithDrV.com. That's OfficeVisitsWithDrV.com. Let's follow up next time. Blessings. <laughs>